You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. A cozy bear sighting shaking up Ukraine's intelligence services. Albania's national IT networks continue to work toward recovery. The U.S. Justice Department seizes $500,000 from DPRK threat actors. The FBI warns of apps designed to defraud cryptocurrency speculators. A White House meeting today addresses the cyber workforce. Ben Yellen looks at our right to record police. Our guest is Tim Knudsen, Director of Product Management for Zero Trust at Google Cloud, speaking with Rick Howard. And another trend we'd like to be included out of. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. Palo Alto Networks Unit 42 reported this morning that the Russian threat actor Cozy Bear is leveraging trusted legitimate cloud services in its campaigns, the better to avoid detection. It's worth noting that Cozy Bear is associated with the SVR Foreign Intelligence Service and also known as Cloat Ursa, APT-29, and Nobelium. Their two most recent campaigns have used Google Drive cloud storage services, and when this is combined with encryption, malicious activity is more difficult to detect. The most recent campaigns have had diplomatic themes, feigning an agenda of an ambassadorial meeting, and are believed to have targeted Western diplomats between May and June of 2022. The documents suggest the target to be either foreign embassies in Portugal or foreign embassies in Brazil. The payload is carried in a link to a malicious HTML file that drops Cobalt Strike. Cobalt Strike is, of course, a legitimate penetration testing tool that's often abused by threat actors. It's not the only such tool that's being misused this way. See Unit 42's earlier post describing the SVR's use of the less well-known Brute Retell tools in similar campaigns. The replacement of both the head of Ukraine's SBU intelligence service and the country's chief prosecutor indicates the extent to which Kyiv is troubled by the problems of disloyalty in the security and intelligence services. The SBU, like its Russian counterparts, the FSB and SVR, is a successor organization to the old Soviet KGB, with all the liabilities that come with that heritage, corruption, cronyism, and perhaps most significantly, susceptibility to compromise by its Russian counterparts. The Telegraph describes some of the specific incidents that prompted the suspensions, and its account points out the difficulties involved in reforming a service with deep institutional roots and a questionable cultural heritage. Contentious Ukrainian domestic politics further complicates efforts at reform. The Register follows developments in the large-scale disruption of Albanian networks that began over the weekend— The e-Albania portal has been particularly disrupted by the attacks, and that disruption has been especially painful given Albania's closure of many in-person services back in May, judging the new online service platform to have rendered the older services redundant and unnecessary. 
The disruption offers an object lesson in the importance of redundancy and the availability of manual backups to provide continuity of service during emergencies. There's no attribution of the attack so far, but the register, on the basis of a little circumstantial evidence and a lot of a priori possibility, suggests that there may be a Russian hand behind them. Zscaler describes its identification of three familiar strands of malware that have made a reappearance in Google's Play Store. The security firm's researchers found numerous apps hosting Joker, Face Stealer, and Coper. Google has ejected the infested apps from the Play Store, and Zscaler advises that users take the usual precautions when they consider installing an app. The U.S. Justice Department has announced the recovery of some $500,000 from North Korean state-sponsored cybercriminals who targeted healthcare organizations with Maui ransomware. U.S. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco cited the operation as an instance of a renewed focus on clawback operations and as a positive example of close private sector cooperation with law enforcement. While the recovery is welcome... CNN points out that the amount is small relative to the hundreds of millions Pyongyang's hackers are believed to have stolen in recent years. The U.S. FBI late yesterday warned that cybercriminals again have altcoin speculators in their sights. The Bureau says it's observed cybercriminals contacting U.S. investors fraudulently claiming to offer legitimate cryptocurrency investment services and convincing investors to download fraudulent mobile apps, which the cybercriminals have used with increasing success over time to defraud the investors of their cryptocurrency. Losses have in some cases run into the millions. The approach trades upon the victim's greed and their desire for convenience. Who wouldn't want an app to help navigate the go-go world of crypto investing? Some of the apps represent themselves as being connected to legitimate or at least formerly legitimate, exchanges. The FBI warns users to exercise due skepticism about offers of trading apps and urges financial institutions not only to caution their customers about the risks of large financial transfers, but also to be alert for criminal impersonation of their brand. As you may have heard, there are about 700,000 unfilled jobs in cybersecurity across the United States, in an effort to address that shortfall, the U.S. National Cyber Director Chris Inglis has convened what the White House describes as a National Cyber Workforce and Education Summit today. The summit has three goals. First, address the need to create and prioritize new skills-based pathways to cybersecurity jobs. Second, take advantage of the opportunity to build pipelines for historically untapped talent, including underserved and diverse communities. And finally, to discuss how investing in cyber training and education will enable Americans who comprise the lifeblood of our economy, including those building the next generation of our nation's infrastructure, to be successful in our digital economy and to empower society to harness cyber capabilities to achieve our individual and collective aspirations. It includes a number of senior government leaders, as well as leaders from the private sector, especially, but not exclusively, the cybersecurity industry and university leaders. One of the companies who's participating, Fortinet, has taken the opportunity to announce an offer of free training it's making available to schools. 
And finally, hey everybody, here's a story we don't fully understand or know how to classify, but since it goes on online with only financial ramifications IRL, as the kids say, here you go, make of it what you will, but apparently there's a pay pig thing going on in cyberspace. It seems, if Business Insider is to be believed, and why shouldn't they be believed, a kind of transactional relationship in which men with money give that money to women who insult them online. That is, the men are paying for the thrill of being verbally disrespected and denigrated. That's the extent of the exchange. The Findomina, as they are known, insults the pay pig, who then sends in money for the privilege of the experience. Yes, we get it. The jokes practically write themselves, as do the stern deconstructive lectures about relative empowerment, but we'll leave it as an exercise for you, gentle listener, to think up your own punchlines, or seminar topics, or keynote speeches. The whole phenomenon seems entirely consensual, and it's hard to say what law might be broken here, our guess is that no law is being broken, but perhaps we've been unduly influenced by the legal opinion Slippin' Jimmy McGill offers in the Hoboken Squat Cobbler episode of Better Call Saul. We'll close by quoting the wisdom of Samuel Goldman, Include us out. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Tim Knudsen is Director of Product Management for Zero Trust at Google Cloud. Back at the RSA conference, my CyberWire colleague Rick Howard met up with Tim Knudsen. Here's their conversation. 
Hey everybody, this is Rick Howard. I've, uh, we're running around RSA and I happen to bump into Tim Knutson. He is the Google Cloud Director of Product Management for Zero Trust and it is my pet peeve of things to talk about. So I thought I would drag him in here and see what he has to say. And from our preliminary uh, conversations, Tim, you said you were trying to address some of the pre-misconceptions or some misconceptions about Zero Trust. So what is the very biggest one that you're trying to um, talk about here at the conference? Yeah, well, there's actually three, but let's start with the, the first one, which uh, is one that I call that uh, is around to do good zero trust does not mean you have to do everything zero trust to start. Okay, because the idea about zero trust is, um, I, mean, I think of it as, as a movement. It's a set of principles. It's an architecture. It's not necessarily one product, nor is it one solution. Yeah, I call it a strategy. It's a, there you go. Right? So my point is, you know, there's this misconception that you have to do all, a full lift and shift to get the good zero trust and my argument is you know, anything that you can move to zero trust, be contractors, a portion of your workforce, a set of devices, is an incremental step in the right direction. Yeah, so don't take the, don't try to boil the whole ocean. This is common, right? This Bingo. Thing, yeah, do little small steps. And every Bingo. little bit you do makes it better, right? Exactly. So what's the biggest thing people are trying to get over? What's the big hurdle that the people trying to implement zero trust are doing? What's the thing that they stumble on? Well, one thing that's commonly an issue is yet another agent. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's, it's, it's a practical problem. It's a real problem. It's fully legit. Now, of course, the, the way to, you know, come, to work around that is to really to think about, well, what are the actual apps that are best suited or have the highest need or urgency for Zero Trust? Um, oftentimes, those are browser-based applications for which, you know, browser-based Zero Trust access is a fine solution if you can find the technology that will give you that that will also combine browser-based proxied access with all of the fine-grained controls you need based on the context, be it identity, whatever you know about the device, other risk scores or signals you're collecting. So that's the thing that, that I have many, many conversations about. Now, the thing is, again, that's, that's a great way to, to get started easily, but oftentimes we're working with people um, and there's many uh, enterprises that have, uh, I call them, multi-generational IT landscapes, right? right. Which is really a, a nicer way of just talking about you know, these, there's apps of all ilk, right? And some, some of them are still the fat client, you know, client server legacy style. So browser space will not solve all. But going back to my first point, starting is getting on the path to good zero trust. Can I rephrase that a little bit and just say that what we're looking at is for material apps, apps that connect to your material data. We should, that's the ones you should be working on, okay? And the other stuff might come later, but we don't have to hit those right away. Right? Exactly. Right? So you said there were three misconceptions. We talked about one. What's the second one? Second one is, um, and this is a little bit contrary to my first point, but, but roll with me on this okay, one. Okay, I'm with you. And that is, um, it's, you know, just worry about, we'll call it the north-south of the front end, and you can deal with the back end later. Sure. The reality is, um, I think, Everyone is probably in some form of a digital transformation conversation, right? Which means you're modernizing some or many apps, which means, you know, you're not building a monolithic app. You're building a composite, distributed, whatever you want to describe a type of app. It's probably using some, some hyperscaler services in there, you know, you know, from someone like, you know, Google or others. And you know what? You need to also think about every leg of that communication, much like you're thinking about just the device to app communication to begin with as well. So, the, my point there is over time, and that's going to be a sooner rather than later, you need to think about how you secure with zero trust or apply zero trust policies and principles across all legs of the communication. That's why, you know, 
Gartner got it right, right? They, searched, they first talked about SASE. Then they're like, hey, hold on. There's just this security portion called SSE or Security Services Edge, which is great. Then they've now talked about this thing called Cassie or the bride of SASE, right? The whole point is talking about the other side of the equation, which is the back end. So is that part of the take the smaller bites first? Because we had the big SASE thing, but now we're going to break into little pieces and get it all right. Is that what we're doing here? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a progression. Yeah. All right. So what's the big idea? Where, where's it going to go? Where is the future of Zero Trust? What are we looking at here? So um, I think there's two, like, if you want to ask, where I look, when I look at my crystal ball, what do I see? Right, so All I... All right, Mr. Wizard, put your, uh, yeah, right, put your so, hat on. So, so I see two things, right? <laughs> okay. okay, so number one's a short-term thing, and number two is a longer-term thing. Short-term thing, number one. And that is, I think that um, many organizations are now looking at combining, you know, this two transformations, Right. Um, one is the need to move to zero trust, and it's going to be more centered around device to app, along with how they can look at other modernization transformation efforts. And the reason being goes all the way back to our first point, which is the app workloads that matter and, and how they, you know, are typically web-based. And looking at those as well as an as a, as a increase, of course, of you know, utilizing SaaS to modernize how, you know, the productivity of the enterprise right? And they're looking at that and saying, okay, if I go with it down that route, what does that mean now to how I can simplify my devices, my, you know, my fleet there, and how I can bring this all together into an integrated view of both modernizing how I work, and also with that, taking advantage of technologies to bring that up to a zero trust standard along the way. That's short term. And I call that out because, you know, I think a lot of this initial move towards zero trust was more like lift and shift from, you know, VPN, right. remote VPN access to more granular context-aware access. Now it's, how do I combine them together to do a better outcome overall? Second one is a little longer term, and it goes back to my point about you know, combining north, south, east, west, front, and back, and how, whatever you want to describe it as. That is going to be the convergence of being able to combine the two together. There will no longer be, I expect, in three to five years, a distinction. I think you're going to be thinking about it across all legs, north, south, east, west, You'll be looking for one way to have a singular policy that works across everything, context that you can apply across everything, that um, and, and the teams will be all working you know, in a unified fashion to make this happen. We started our zero trust journey around 2010 or so, right? This is kind of when we all started talking about it. Uh, when do you see it as being just the normal thing that everybody does? Is that... Two years away, five years away? Well, if you measure it as um, <laughs> it's a conversation why, for which you no longer have to explain why, and it's all about just what and how, um, we're there now. Yeah. So everybody's got it, and then we're just moving towards well, it now. Yeah. Everybody knows what it is and why they should do it. <laughs> now, where they are on that, that transformation path or that journey or whatever word you want to apply to it, that's a different, that's a different you know, topic. But there's no longer any the why conversations. Yeah. It's, it's, it's mainstream. Thanks for coming out and explaining uh, what Zero Trust is to you. Thanks. I appreciate it. No worries. All right, man. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. 
And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Uh, Interesting, uh, I guess you'd call it a press release from the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, The article is titled, Victory, Another Court Protects the Right to Record Police. What's going on here, Ben? So there have been a bunch of challenges in most of the judicial circuits across the country. Uh, The one in this article refers to the Tenth Circuit, but we've had decisions at the appellate level in the first, third, fifth, seventh, ninth, and eleventh circuit. Isn't that kind of weird that it's all the odd circuits? It's, it's until, not until not this as current weird, article. Not as weird as the fact that you have them all memorized. But go on. Yes, memorized. <laughs> of course, that's it. Uh, so there's this question of whether states can pass laws forbidding people from recording police interactions. Right. The fact that people do record interactions with police on their smartphones has been a boon to people who want to foster police accountability. Yeah. We would not have had George Floyd protests if we had just relied on the word of law enforcement. It was the video that caused those protests. Right. Um, The fact that it was uh, something people could see with their own eyes. Law enforcement uh, understands that they're going to get pushback if every— type of episode like that is is recorded. And in their defense, some of the video footage is and could be misrepresented to make them look bad, even if, you know, perhaps the viewer of the video didn't understand the full context. Right. Might not tell the whole story. Right. So that's, that's certainly a consideration. Yeah. I think what the courts are saying in all of these appellate jurisdictions is recognizing law enforcement's interest in protecting its own safety Um, That certainly does not supersede the First Amendment right of speech and expression, which manifests itself in somebody taking out uh, their camera and recording. These efforts, uh, at least at the state level, are not going to stop. I know there's a proposed law in uh, Arizona, and there's been a major debate about it that would criminalize uh, people filming law enforcement interactions. Right. It was like an eight-foot distance or something like that? Yeah, uh, which might not, might not seem large, but if they're around the corner uh, and the eight-foot is the difference between uh, you being able to record and not record, that's mm-hmm. certainly going to be uh, an item of difficulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to inhibit your ability to record the interaction. The appellate courts are recognizing that videotaping law enforcement is a form of uh, expression. It's a form of getting your uh, voice heard, um, publishing something that that you've seen with your own eyes. You know, it's not somebody, it's not like somebody is trespassing on somebody else's physical property. Right. Uh, it's generally something that's in public view. The Electronic Frontier Foundation and the ACLU and other groups have rightfully made the case that it has improved police transparency and accountability. Uh, and once we see sort of this uniform application among circuit courts across the country, it makes it more likely that um, the Supreme Court isn't going to mess with this. They're not going to supersede the near-unanimous holdings uh, of all of these federal circuit courts. Uh, Is that only for the folks who are within these appellate court districts? 
For now it is, yeah. yes. Um, but that covers a large portion of the country. Right. Uh, I noticed the 4th District was not on there, and that's where we live uh, here in Maryland. Ugh. It was not on that list. Uh, <laughs> come on, Ben. I know, but I'm sure some case is going to come up. Uh, one of the states that's in the 4th Circuit is going to try and pass a law. There's going to be a challenge to that law. Somebody's going to get arrested, yeah. prosecuted, uh, and they'll come up with a constitutional claim. And the 4th Circuit um, might go... A different way than the other circuits, but I think the trend is pretty clearly in one direction here, mm-hmm. uh, protecting the right of people to record the police. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, I, I, I personally, I'd uh, categorize this as good news. Yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, good news for transparency and accountability uh, and in not restricting people's uh, constitutional rights. So, it's something where it's affirming to see that so many courts agree with our civil liberties instincts here. Yeah. I, you know, I agree with the, the notion that there should be a reasonable amount of distance that you keep between, you know, law enforcement who are busy doing their work. Right. And that could be a public safety issue. Right. Yeah. But I guess what I wonder about, particularly the case that you mentioned where – or the one we talked about earlier with the eight-foot distance – what if I'm standing 20 feet away and a police officer closes that distance to make it smaller than eight feet? Right. Right? I, 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 I didn't move. Right. But they were the ones who, <laughs> right. who lessened it. I mean, yeah, right. that could be a, a complication with that. There yeah. are a couple of other interesting uh, complications here. One is the police department, in the case they reference here, tried to use qualified immunity, which— Protects law hmm. enforcement unless they did something particularly egregious. Right. Uh, and it's really important that this court has said that qualified immunity doesn't apply to a situation where somebody is taking out a video and recording. Ah. Another thing they mentioned in this article that I, we talked about a long time ago is uh, on-duty officers playing loud popular music to try and <laughs> right. get copyright claims right. uh, filed against uh, the video by the producers of this music. Um, so, you know, police will do anything to try to shield themselves if they think a video could potentially be damaging. So it's good to see courts try to to take a stand on this. Yeah. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Rachel Gelkind, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.